It breaks my heart that this is the reality in our country, but it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. This food is then provided to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about using your imagination, learning, and having fun. These children shouldn't have to miss out on simply being a kid because they're hungry. To find out how you can help end childhood hunger in your community, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. here on 90.1 FM KPFT Pacifica Radio. We're here as always for discussion of our children, public policy, and how as we as a, and how we as a city and community do when it comes to taking care of all of our kids. Growing Up in America is a production of Children at Risk, the voice of Texas's youth, a nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas's youth. Every week, we aim to fill these same 60 minutes with lively discussion on the children of Texas with experts on the quality of life. Of course, we have regular segments like Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, and Data of the Day, which our teaser number today is 99.7. So as always, if you have a guest before we get there, go ahead and call 713-526-5738 to let us know what you think, what is 99.7. We hope you'll join us through that and the rest of the show as we discuss the issues as they affect the children of Houston and Texas. Now, if you haven't noticed, they just sent me in here today. I finally lost that other guy, Bob. Um, It's just me, Lauren Beagle, Assistant Director of Programs at Children at Risk and regular Gen Z correspondent here on the show. So I'm really excited to be with you all today, but since there's no co-host, that means I need some extra friends on the phones. Keep me entertained. I'm also looking for help making a March Madness bracket. So if you have any advice, if you want to tell me who I should pick to win it all, I literally have no opinions, but I've been roped in. So as always, call 713-526-5738 for either thoughts on policy, a guess on 99.7, or advice for who I should put where in my March Madness bracket. All right, first up segment is thumbs up, thumbs down. All right, now, this week's thumbs up, thumbs down is spanking. I have prepared a list of pros and cons that I'm going to share with y'all. And then once again, please do call in and tell me what you think. Some pros we have listed 
Um, I'm, try, I'm trying to read these. I mean, some for some people, it's a natural natural form of discipline to enforce authority. I'll be honest. I can't even read these pros. Me personally, me personally, yeah. I um I'm gonna say con. I'm anti spanking. I think we've moved on. We've learned to be better. It didn't do any of the things that we thought it would do. Um, in this whole idea that it like actually would make children respect you or like learn better. I don't think it does that. I just think hitting kids is weird even when it's spanking. So that's me. But I invite anyone who has a different opinion maybe to call in at 713-526-5738. But I think it's kind of interesting. I do think this has been a generational thing. I feel like I was in the generation where like some people I knew as Gen Z did get spanked. My parents were big threateners. But for the most part, I don't think they ever actually spanked us. Um, But I think and I hope that we're moving out of a corporal punishment mindset. Because I just don't... I don't think there's anyone I know who's like, wow, I got spanked and boy did I learn my lesson. It was really good and didn't in any way trivialize my relationship with my parents. um, And was, you know, all a good thing. So definitely a weird move. But again, if anyone else wants to call in, and and share your thoughts. I'd love for you to do so. Thumbs up, thumbs down, I feel like, is the worst segment to do one-on-one. Um, because I need someone else. Oh, my gosh. Is Becky from the studio going to come chat about spanking? Slay. Oh, my gosh. It's Becky, former host, one, one-time host? Yes, one-time. One-time co-host of Growing Up in America from the Children at Risk team. And she's here to share some thoughts. Becky, spanking. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Well, um, I'm going to say thumbs down, though I was spanked as a child. Um, But I also attribute it to my cultural um, background. So I am a Hispanic. Um, So um, my parents didn't really ever see it as wrong. Obviously now there has been a lot of studies that show Sure. Other, otherwise, you know. Can I ask, like, do your parents still stand by it? No. They kind of, I would like to say, um, ignore it. Mm. Or um, they don't address it. But it was, a, like, it was a big part of me growing up as a discipline-wise. Yeah. You know? it so was, it, it, didn't, did, it didn't work? Um, I, w- <laughs> <laughs> I joke around and say it builds character um, because... It made me a little bit more rebellious, if that makes sense. Um, so that I remember, clearly remember one time my mom, she's, she was going to spank me. So like I ran around the house like, you can't catch me. But she did. She caught you. She did. Yeah. They, yeah. Do, they have a funny way of doing that, for sure. Yeah, I feel like my parents definitely, like, it wasn't because it was off the table. Like, they definitely, I think they threatened it and they meant it. Um, but I was just like and aggressively like strive to please eldest child yeah so that that did it for me i um, i do feel like i've heard parents doing it a slight like a slight tap to scare them mm. um just so because of their safety yeah. um because they're doing stuff and in the moment you want to make sure they're not gonna like run in front of a road i will say yeah i think that's yeah. the like closest to like physical punishment was like if you were like running into the street and in that like yeah. shock moment the like you know hit yep. upside the head or the like harsh i got a lot of like very firm like arm grabbing with a little bit of nails you know like, yeah i don't think it was meant to just be you know it didn't wasn't just to stop me um but yeah okay yeah well thanks becky yeah, for no popping problem. out and sharing um i think children at risk due to the data we are officially thumbs down on spanking this just in spanking bad spanking bad thanks becky thank you (laughs) all righty let's keep on moving to our first guest i don't know if we have there we go All right. With those funky beats, I'm welcoming uh, Srila V. Sharma onto the show, a PhD RDN. She's a professor and food insecurity researcher at UT School of Public Health. 
Specifically, Dr. Sharma is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Texas School of Public Health in Houston. Dr. Sharma is a behavioral epidemiologist with specific interest in food insecurity, nutritional epidemiology, and diet-related chronic diseases in children, vulnerable underserved populations, and has a robust federally funded research program in the Houston area. More recently, Dr. Sharma is leading several COVID-19 related projects, including a Texas statewide COVID-19 system tracking initiative, analysis of COVID-19 data from the Texas Medical Center, Harris County, and the Department of State Health Services, providing recommendations for public health decision-making and assessing the impact of COVID-19 on employment, food security, financial stability, and other social needs among vulnerable populations in Texas. Dr. Sharma is committed to serving the community on behalf of UT Health. Dr. Sharma is co-leading the Greater Houston Coalition on Social Determinants of Health, a Harris County-wide effort focused on mitigating food insecurity and other social determinants of health among its residents. She's also the co-founder of Brighter Bites, a nationwide nonprofit dedicated to providing fresh produce and nutrition education to low-income children and families. Hi, Dr. Sharma. How are you? Hi. Boy, that was a long intro. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry to make you listen to your, your bio get read on the air, but there was a whole lot there for, for people to know. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Of course. We're excited to chat. So you um, both, you know, obviously in, in Brighter Bites and as a an epidemiologist, work specifically with, with food and nutrition. I'd love to hear a little bit about you know, what got you into that work and what's very, what you find motivating about that, um, that work? Uh, sure. So uh, I'm a registered dietitian by training. And, um, you know, a lot of the work that uh, we do, do in the clinical space, uh, uh, you know, that as part of I was doing as part of my training uh, really got me to think about, well, how do we prevent a lot of the diet-related chronic diseases that the patients are presenting with, because by then it might be a little too late. Um, So how do we prevent these conditions rather than, uh, you know, focus on the treatment uh, side of things? And so uh, fast forward, you know, I got my PhD in epidemiology, which really gave me the tools to study how, um, uh, you know, what might be the strategies to address these very sticky issues, such as food insecurity and uh, you know, nutrition security, diet quality, and so on, and and uh, uh, what might be some of the sustainable solutions to address these issues. And that's where Brighter Bites comes into play. Um, uh, Brighter Bites is a, now a nationwide nonprofit, um, but essentially uh, it's a school-based food co-op that uh, combines fresh food, provides access to fresh fruits and vegetables, plus um, hands-on nutrition education in school and for parents uh, to essentially address and improve diet quality in vulnerable children as well as uh, their families. Wow, that's really interesting. And just for our listeners, when you're talking about um, diet, what was the term, diet-based disease or like diet-caused diet Diet-related chronic disease. Thank you. Yeah. Um, what are some of the diseases we're talking about? Um, well, <laughs> the most recent one being the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, you know, as we know, uh, those who were struggling with uh, diabetes or obesity had uh, uh, poor outcomes um, and, uh, you know, even higher risk of mortality or death from COVID-19. So uh, that's a very recent example. But essentially, we're talking about uh, type 2 diabetes, obesity, hypertension, heart disease, uh, many of these uh, conditions that are uh, plaguing our society in very large numbers. Um, so those those are what we say diet-related chronic diseases because uh, they're associated with uh, poor um, dietary behaviors. Very interesting. So how does Bright Bite seek to prevent um, those diseases in general, poor nutrition? Uh, yeah, uh, so Brighter Bites uh, essentially is a, a health uh, promotion program, and our goal is to create communities of health through fresh food. And we are now in 10 cities across the U.S. Uh, in um, almost 200 schools. We serve about 60,000 families each week. Um, but the premise of Brighter Bites was, uh, you know, we have a very 
large um, problem of food waste in the in the U.S. About sixty to seventy billion pounds of fresh produce it just dies on the landfill because it does not meet retail specs. And on the other side, we have a, a very large problem of food insecurity. Uh, over forty million Americans uh, go to bed hungry. Uh, because they just don't have access to to food, um, and we need to eat well to live well, right? Eat healthy to live a, a healthy life and a long life. And so, with Brighter Bites, what we do is we channel this produce, extra product that we have in the United States, we channel that um, and and bring it in by partnering with food growers and food distributors and local food banks like the Houston Food Bank. And we channel that produce into low-income communities through schools. So the way you would see it is that uh, uh, this year we are in 60 schools in in the Houston area. And these schools are predominantly serve uh, vulnerable communities. So uh, over 75% of the children are, are, are on the free and reduced lunch program. And so the entire school can participate in Rider Bites, uh, including... You know, of course, the children, their families, the teachers, uh, everybody gets to participate in the program. And uh, the way it works is that one day a week, um, the families come and they get their box of uh, fresh, delicious uh, produce uh, with 8 to 12 different kinds of uh, colorful fruits and vegetables. Uh, And then we also give them tips and tools on how to use the food we are giving them. Uh, And then we have the program is very immersive in its nutrition education uh, concept. So we actually train the whole school in implementing uh, a coordinated school health program called CATCH. Uh, So uh, the teachers, you know, do produce activities in the classroom they talk about healthy food in their language arts and math and, and science. And then the kids go home and they get to try their fresh fruits and veggies that they get through the program. And so, uh, and then we, we have a very robust, uh, you know, data backbone. So we track everything that we do as well. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, that's the, a little bit about Rider Bites. Wow. I mean, that's awesome. We talk all the time about how, you know, I'd, I'd want to say it's oversaid, but I can't think it can be, you know, that kids can't learn when they're hungry. Um, and so it sounds like you guys are really making, you know, a tangible difference um, in so many in so many lives um, with that work. And I'd love to know, you know, we have a, a common children at risk question, which there we know there isn't one. But if there mm-hmm. was, you know, a silver bullet policy <laughs> or other solution to food insecurity, especially for for children, what would you mm-hmm. what would you suggest <laughs> I think you 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 said it first the right time. There is no silver bullet except the fact that um, food is not um, a, a want; it's a need, right? It's a it's at the very bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which means we need to eat to live, right? And I mentioned earlier we need to eat well to live well, and so um, uh, given that it's a it's a you know human rights issue in terms of having access to food. Um, uh, our role is how do we make access to um, healthy food, right, such as fruits and vegetables and lean protein and whole grains. How do we make that available to all, regardless of uh, their income and where they live? Um, and so with the children, it becomes a very sticky issue because. Uh, they're dependent, right? They're dependent on their parents, their family members, their providers, their teachers to do right by them. And so uh, given that uh, that uh, food is, as you mentioned, if, if children don't eat, they, they cannot learn well. Uh, if children don't eat, there's many other things they cannot do well and, and will live a shorter lifespan. And so uh, it is incumbent upon us to make sure that uh, all kids have access to healthy food. Agreed there. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma, for joining us. We'll have to have you back to just keep on getting into, you know, all of the work you're doing and and what our kids need. Um, But that's it for now. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Bye-bye.
today's funky beats. We've got some new a new playlist going today, and I'm having fun. Last week, actually, you might have noticed neither Bob nor I, nor maybe quite a few children at Risk Staff, were here at the radio, and that's because we were actually doing a learning tour in Cuba, um, which we're going to be talking about throughout the show today. We took, you know, some of our staff. We took a group of really, like, honestly, nationwide, we had folks from Chicago, folks from all over Texas, who came with us to really just open our minds and see, you know, obviously, if you guys grew up in America, I think we have a pretty consistent narrative around Cuba, the revolution, what happened, what they're doing, you know, poorly, mostly, I would say. Um, and, you know, that's remains a politically salient issue, both because, you know, they're just our neighbors to the southeast. And, you know, I'd say Cuban Americans are a pretty can be a pretty influential voting block. So kind of at every turn, this is something we should all be maybe thinking about more than we are. And I think that's something we we realized on this trip was we all kind of got there and was like, wow, a lot's happened that maybe we haven't thought about since, you know, Cuba was more salient in the day to day news cycle. Um, But I mean, again, we'll talk about it more later, but I think, you know, everybody had a really eye-opening time hearing from the Cuban people about the effect of U.S. policies there that really continue to prohibit them from just, like, being part of the the global marketplace of exporting and importing the things that they need um, and kind of how that has been turned into maybe a narrative around being a third world or, you know, horribly, you know, corrupt or, or impoverished country um, as something that, you know, I think we hear about that as if it's, you know, completely divorced from the U.S.'s choice um, to be involved and to maintain that policy there. Um, so again, we'll be talking a little bit about more of the details of what we saw, but I wanted to give that um, that little preface about why Cuba is on the mind for us and our staff um, before we go to our next segment, which is data of the day. So I'm announcing now this is your last chance to call in and guess. If you want to tell me what you think 99.7 represents, call literally right now at 713-526-5738. Anyone? Anyone? No one? All right. Y'all are losers. You're not playing with me today. And no one's told me what to do with my March Madness bracket. In that case, let's welcome Christine Thomas on the show from the Children at Risk Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation. I'm sure you can confirm for us and the Beatles that one and one and one is three. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. But yeah, the playlist is throwing me off. I'm just, you know, expect to hear Beyonce when I come on here. But that was a, that was a good choice. So. As sad as I am to not have listened to Beyonce, I'm still really, I'm digging the beats. I believe these are, yes. is our, is our production making the beats? Is that y'all in there? Slay. All right, Christine. <laughs> The people, you've stumped them this week. They have no clue what 99.7 is. So why don't you go ahead and tell them? Yeah, so we are talking about literacy today. So the ability to read and write in a way that allows us to communicate and make sense of the world. So we're also tying in a little bit of the information that people got to learn while on the Children at Risk Learning Tour in Havana, Cuba. I was not there, sadly, um, but we're focusing on literacy because research, research shows that literacy has a significant impact on a person's earning potential and overall quality of life. The Cuba's literacy rate for adults over the age of 15 is actually 99.7%. Wow. That brings us to our number of the day, yeah. And that's because of a massive literacy campaign in the early 60s. So the Cuban Literacy Campaign dispatched about a quarter of a million volunteers, mostly young women, into the rural parts of the country and raised the Cuban literacy rate from 60 to 70% to close to over 100, almost 100% in a little over a year. So we can compare that to what's going on in the U.S. Like you said earlier, let's look at our neighbors 
and see, you know, what's working for them and, and, and think about our own policies and, in this instance, what's going on in our schools. So in the U.S., uh, 89% of adults actually, over the age of 25 hold a high school diploma, but only 79% of those adults are actually literate. Only 46% of those adults read at uh, at or above a sixth grade level. So when we're thinking about the STAR testing, you know, we have that information um, when we, we send out those reports every year. And there's, there's a reason for it, you know, that we're, we're interested in, in those scores. So Forbes estimates that this low U.S. literacy level among adults could actually be costing the economy close to $2.2 trillion a year. Wow. You know, I think I'm yet to hear from a certain camp that literacy is really the answer to our economic strife. But it sounds like if only 46% of adults read at or above a sixth grade level, that's something we ought to be talking about a little bit more. Definitely. And as you know, I think that's why we, when we talk to advocates and, you know, want to question what's going on in public schools, I think this is a good start to, to start that dialogue. Yeah. And Christine, if you don't know this, no worries. But, you know, we're looking at this. It looks like in Cuba, it was a a rural focused campaign that brought their literacy up. Do you have any idea kind of if if that's similar, if it's in rural areas of the United States where we're particularly behind in literacy or is it, you know, different variables here? You know, I think when it comes to we're looking at overall nation statistics, I think, um, yeah, some data, you know, there's data out there. I think we know when populated cities, um, but, you know, we call more attention to it. I think that's a great start to, like, what children at risk can start looking into is the real data and how star testing comes. We know there's um, less access to resources like tutoring, and obviously the pandemic has opened up a lot more avenues of virtual tutoring and education. Um, so, no, I don't have that offhand. That's, it's still interesting, though. I mean, I'm, I just don't know what to do about the fact that only 46% of adults, and you're saying that's of adults with a high school diploma or total? Correct. Of those that have a high school diploma, only 46% have read at or above a sixth grade reading level. Well, that certainly leaves a lot to be desired. And it's, it's really mm-hmm. interesting to see that the Cuba, it was really just a, over a year that that, you know, if it, it begs the question, I think this is something that came up, you know, for those of us who were on the trip a lot is like, not, you know, necessarily that we're going to see like, oh, Cuba does this, let's go do it. Because there's obviously so much that's different, but it really was just a shocking, you know, full 180 on like priorities and to see, you know, where they're putting their efforts in there and their time compared to where the U.S. chooses to put um, efforts and money and, and resources when we have them was really fascinating. And so to think, you know, yes, it would definitely take a lot for us to, you know, perform any sort of similar campaign, but it is, you do wonder what, as Forbes would suggest, it'd be $2 trillion, but what the payoff might be um, if we if we took a leap on that kind of program, because it sounds like it might be worth worth considering. Absolutely. Yeah. And we know other countries have things like community health care workers to do a lot of that preventative care. Um, and it, it, you know, really follows along of, you know, we it provides employment opportunity, but also um, it's a something that didn't take that long. So employing these um, young women out, they were able to do it in a short amount of time and got some great results. Yeah. All right. Well, this was so interesting. I feel like this was a little more, a little more of a story than we normally get in our data of the day. So thanks so much, Christine. Thank you. All right. Have a good one. Now, if you are in or around the Houston area and you have spent one or more seconds near a news source today, you probably heard that uh, it seems to be official. The Texas Education Agency has taken over Houston Independent School District, the largest 
school district in the state, if not also the country, one of, a big old school district. Um, and because I obviously don't have a whole lot of intelligent things to say about it, we have Tom Monahan, director of Texas A+, a part of Children at Risk, here to chat with us. Tom, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. All right, Tom, I, I trust you to, to bring some good insight on what does it mean to those of us like me who maybe can understand, I can guess what it means for TAE to take over HISD, but like in the literal sense, what does that look like? What does it mean that HISD is now taken over? Well, from my understanding, and I guess as a result of this morning, it looks like uh, it's going to happen after the school year. I mean, they've taken over, but they're not going to make any changes until the school year is over. So we'll get through testing season, et cetera. And then there'll be a, a, a board consisting of managers as well as um, a superintendent and not clear on uh, how they'll, who that'll be, uh, what, what, how they'll move in that direction. Okay. That's good to know. I hadn't, I hadn't seen that it was the end of the school year. Okay. So we're already setting some good, some good groundwork. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, your perspective, you and the other, you know, A plus coaches are in schools working with teachers and specialists on a day to day for them or for y'all, how could this change, you know, y'all's experience in the classroom? Well, that, I guess, remains to be seen, but I, I would think that at the end of the day, uh, folks want what's best for uh, schools and districts and, and, more importantly, kids. And so I would think that there would still be a great need to build professional efficacy in service of, of teachers and leadership, uh, uh, with the end result being a smarter and stronger students. So... I would like to think there wouldn't be a big shift. The, the shift right now that I, that I guess, well, that I'm seeing is, you know, principals and folks that have been worried or concerned or wondering how this is going to play out. It'll basically be really important for them to do the best they can to stay, stay focused on the primary, especially since we're just, you know, 20 days away from the RLA or Reading Writing Star test. Uh, and 30 days away from the mathematics, and, and we know how important data is. So uh, folks are going to have to work hard within the district to keep everybody pumped up and focused. Tom, I'm so sorry. I don't. We don't know what happened, but I can't hear you. It sounds like our listeners heard all of that, but I cannot hear you. Well, oh, there can you, you hear are. Me now? now you're back. Oh, okay. That's weird. So funny technology. So the listeners could hear me. Okay, well that's <laughs> so sorry. If you could give me like the short version of what you said, catch me up. But I trust. Well, quickly, they... yeah. I don't. I, I don't see. I don't see major changes. Um, hopefully, uh, there, there'll always be a need uh, for teacher development, professional efficacy in service of students and coaching, um, et cetera. And I think that uh, would continue uh, regardless. But right, right now, it's going to be really important to support the schools, the principals uh, need to support the teachers and, and their communities, the uh, area superintendents and the SSOs do the same to help folks stay targeted and strategic because the STAR test is just 20 days away for reading writing. Uh, it's earlier this year than it has been in the past, um, as well as uh, mathematics is about 30 days away. So we want to be focused on the primary to have a great um, result with respect to the state exams. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I know, you know, obviously this is something people have a lot of thoughts both ways about. Um, but I think especially after today, it looks like it is happening. And it's one of those things where I feel like we just have to keep our eyes on eyes on the prize or the goal of, to your point, just figuring out, you know, the system and the solution that works best for students. And so I don't know if you have an answer to this question, but, you know, best case scenario from, you know, TEA taking over HISD, like, 
what do you what do you think we should what what's what should be our goal regardless of what it might be but like what should really be the goal of that you know what should we be looking for looking towards to see what's the successful you know what's this you know valuable mm-hmm. well I, I don't I would want to believe that there will not be a lot of disruption occurring as a result of this that the things that have been implemented that are perceived as good practices with respect to curriculum, et cetera, that has been implemented in some schools and across the district that it be uh, given more time, that a ton of support would continue um, because we know that the best place for, you know, student learning to occur is when kid, our teachers are well-equipped mm-hmm. uh, and that we're paying a lot of attention uh, to student growth. Um, at least one year, and moving them towards meets and masters. And if folks are on that train and 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 really want that to be the the scenario, then then they'll listen very carefully to what the great principals uh, in the district and and support folks have to say as HISD moves you know forward into this next chapter. Yeah, I mean that sounds good to me. So as far as I'm concerned. That's that's where we'll be looking. Um, you know, obviously schools have been through a lot over the last few years, so I like the perspective of you know trying to avoid disruption and and keep if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Keep on with the things we know work, um, and let yeah. our in school experts kind of lead to the to the extent possible. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Tom. This was helpful. I've been looking hey. at this news this headline all day, trying to trying to make heads and tails of it. So thank you. Great. Well, thanks for having me. Have a good one. All right. We're staying in Houston today. We're keeping it pretty local. Um, Next up, we have... Stephen Ives, who is the president and CEO of the YMCA Greater Houston. Stephen, how are you? I'm doing well today. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining. Um, Obviously, I'd be curious. We were just talking to um, Tom Monahan, the director of Texas A+, which is now part of our Children at Risk team. As someone who works closely with schools and school-aged kids, do you have a reaction to the, the TEA takeover news? Um, mostly that I'm just glad it's clear. I think this, this unknown land is very unhelpful, you know, so Mm -hmm. I'm glad that it's clear as to what's happening. You know, the proof will be in the pudding on it in terms of how effective the state will be. I think some great strides have been made in HASD over the last couple of years. And I'm just really hopeful that this will do nothing but accelerate it. If, you know, that's the whole point of it. So, um, I think that, uh, a lot of good has started. I hope that that gets continued and then built upon. Agreed. There, I think that's. I think that's a good perspective. I like the idea of just you know now they we're kind of actually we'll see what happens because it's been too long. I think that we've been yeah in this gray area talking about it. Will it? Won't it? Um, so right. It'll be very interesting for sure. Um, to that Absolutely. point, you want to tell us a little bit about you know what exactly is going on at the YMCA of Greater Houston. Sure. Well, you know, coming out of COVID, you know, we, we learned a lot about ourselves. And most importantly, we knew that we know that we're very capable of pivoting and being of use and of service to the community where it needs us most, when it needs us most. So that learning and strengthening of that skill internally will continue to play out. You know, with this, the work, the, the community efforts to um, help our public education system work to the best that it possibly can, the why will be actively involved in that to whatever extent we're, we're welcomed in and invited in. But at the same time, we're, we're already running a couple of hundred after-school child care sites across the region, not just with HISD but with others. So those out-of-school time as well as summer day camps and resident camp experiences is really meant to extend the learning experience uh, that young people have. So we line a lot of our curriculum up with what's happening in the school districts we're working with in those out-of-school time periods. We also, you know, are continuing to to, uh, grow back to somewhat more pre-COVID numbers in terms of people in our fitness and wellness programs. And 
we've been a, a big player in the in the refugee resettlement work that's been happening across the the city and with our partners. There's uh, four agencies, and the Y is one of them that that really carry a, a, a the bulk of the burden, if you will, for helping people who are Afghan allies. There were about five thousand that we collectively uh, helped resettle and, and get acquainted with being U.S. citizens or U.S. contributory participants in our society. And so those are those are the biggies. Um, but it's a, it's an exciting time for us. We've just built out a strategic plan and really looking at the next ten years as to how we really do our job in strengthening the foundations of community, which to me speaks to the connections, those ties that bind us together in community, and in particular in the area of achievement, belonging, and, and um, relationships. So we're going we're gonna to be continue to focus our efforts on uh, helping Houstonians and people in the greater Houston region to experience relationships, strong bonds that um, help them do the best that they possibly can individually, but also collectively that uh, that people are experienced of all ages are experiencing a sense of belonging in our community and that people are experiencing the process of setting and achieving goals and moving forward. We think that those are really important metrics for success in our community. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I feel like the more that we talk to care providers and in doing kind of the work we do at Children at Risk and Research and Advocacy, I think Sometimes we get lost in a lot of stuff that's bigger than just relationship. And I think, you know, talking about kids, like having trusted adults and people like that in their lives can really make, in some ways, more difference, I think, than some of these, you know, big programs we like to talk about. So I love to hear that that is, you know, in the work that you guys do, it's those those priorities. Um, I'd love mm. to hear a little bit for, you know, the students in your programs. We also were talking a few weeks ago about... Um, I think it was Crosby ISD moving to a four-day school week, right? Um, which is right. I'm, I'm, you know, a complex topic and decision. But I'd love to hear, you know, through that lens, what it means for the students in your programs to have that additional time, you know, whether that be, you know, the summer camps or after school to continue being in a supportive learning environment. Well, I think it just it creates even more opportunity for us to use the. I'll call it sneaky teaching technique. Mm-hmm. You know, we're having fun playing games. We're having some recreation. Um, holy cow! We're also doing a STEM lesson, and oh, wow. we're doing a, we're doing a, you know, learning about environment. We're we're learning about relationships and how to be with each other and community. Really important skill sets for young people to develop. Um, I think, you know, if anything, it'll it'll provide more opportunity for us to do those kinds of. Uh, behaviors and activities with young people, um, especially if, you know, we, we tend to fill the gaps. So parents need care for their children. If a d- school department goes to four days and that, that creates a great opportunity for the Y and other not-for-profit agencies to provide a service for families where the kids have a safe, productive place to go, but also to enhance the learning when it's outside of the, of the classroom. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think given y'all, you know, I'd assume would have maybe a little more flexibility and opportunities to do those sneaky things and those fun activities that we all know mm-hmm. are learning, but yeah, don't that students mm-hmm. don't perceive as learning. Um, right. I'd love to hear what y'all do. Um, this is something we've been talking about and we're working with some different campuses on is trying to bring parents and families into learning as well. I'd love to hear if that's something you guys do um, or if it's, you know, a goal as well or kind of how families play into those, um, those programs. Well, we have the advantage of, you know, you imagine an after-school site with 70 or 100 children in it. Parents are showing up and having interaction with our staff every day in the handoff and then the drop-off. And so those create some some unique opportunities. They're not all getting on a bus and heading off elsewhere. So our actual teachers get to have the face-to-face with the parents. And we have a habit of, of providing regular um, report outs back to parents as to how things are going and what they might want to be paying attention to from a learning perspective with their children, but we also have that opportunity real time at drop off or pick up time to check in with mom or dad and and uh, ask a little bit about what's happening and to share um, what we're working on and how they can support it. So I think it's a place that our model creates a unique opportunity with. Yeah, I think that's we hear from other you know community organizations as well that drop off and pick up seems to be like the most valuable time of the day sometimes because mm-hmm. you have a captive audience. Um, 
as I'm, you know, I'm sure y'all are feeling it's spring break. I'd love to hear are y'all doing any camps or activities or do you have, you know, if we have parents listening who have kids at home yeah. or are looking for something in the Houston area to do either with y'all or just around Houston, what, what are y'all recommending for spring break this year? Well, I would say if parents are, are around and enjoying this beautiful weather here. We have some wonderful outdoor spaces at our, at our centers. We built pavilions and we built some, um, mini pitches for soccer. There's lots of sports and recreation. So stop by your local Y with this 22 of them in the region. Um, and just check out the programs, the activities, uh, or go for a swim in the pool. You know, if you want to join and, or get a day pass and, get into one of our pools during this beautiful weather. Um, those are certainly things you can do with and through the YMCA. And we typically run vacation camps, so you can look and see what's being offered uh, any week. But typically, if there's days off from, from uh, school, the Y will have an opportunity for parents to uh, have their kids in a program for the day. That's awesome. I'm, I'm feeling a little inspired now. I feel like it had not occurred to Good. me as someone around the Houston area to go hang out at a Y. So I might go to just that. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Look at our, check out our website, ymcahouston.org and see what's happening. There's a great website that tells the story of who we are, what our purpose is in strengthening community and building those bonds. And it gets done through activities, through sharing activities together and getting to know your neighbors. And so I encourage everybody to take advantage of that opportunity. Awesome. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us and for providing your perspective on a couple of the the hot education topics and just general things going on for Houston kids. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have well, a good thank one. you for having us. Of you course. Bye. Bye-bye. We're going both across the Lone Star State and back across the ocean. We have Sarika Barlow from the YWCA El Paso um, to talk to us some more about that Cuba trip we can't shut up about. Sarika, how are you? It's been so long. Well, good morning. How are you? Or good afternoon. I'm in a different time zone way over here on the other side of Texas. (laughs) I'm good. You normally, I don't know, have you called into our radio show before? I have not, so thank you for the invitation. Of course, normally you'd get me and someone else, but today it's the Lauren show. So I'd like to say lucky you, but I'm not sure if our listeners agree. <laughs> well, um, Sarika, I'd love to hear before we get into, you know, talking about Cuba and all of that, just an overview for people who might not be familiar of what y'all are doing at the YWCA El Paso. Well, thank you, Lauren. Uh Here at YWC El Paso del Norte Region, we are a regional service provider. We have after-school care programs. We have academies for early learning or or daycare centers, which are commonly called. We also support and have the Sarah McKnight Transition Living Center for um, a battered uh, women's shelters. We do rapid rehousing. We have senior housing. Um, we also have our health and wellness branches across the community. And we provide service support and provide scholarships for the uh, Workforce Solutions Borderplex. So we, we are amongst the largest and most complex YWCAs in the country. Wow. I mean, it definitely sounds like y'all have a lot going on to, to earn you that title. Um, so, you know, taking, keeping that in mind, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, we've taken a few days now since we last saw each other on Saturday in Cuba, um, to digest the trip. What is kind of standing out to you in your reflection is just like things you saw that you're still kind of mulling over or thinking about. Oh my goodness. So first off, I'm extremely grateful, um, for children's at risk for just setting up this opportunity for us because, I I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know I really could learn so much from Cuba. I mean, we cannot forget it's a communist country. And and so um I found that despite them having such an extremely high poverty rate, 
having, you know, high food insecurities and, you know, having their citizens be well below the poverty level, there were still so much that we could learn from them when it came to how they provide care or resources for their children because they have such a high literacy rate mm-hmm. as as a country. And and I'm I'm like, wow, it's confounding to have, you know, so many obstacles that are not necessarily in favor of such high outcomes and yet be amongst the world's highest literacy. And so that was one of the things that really stuck out. And with YWCA, our mission, of course, is to eliminate racism and empower women. And we provide peace, justice, dignity, and freedom for all. So with that, just looking at how that's a marginalized country in a sense because they have so little, and yet they're able to provide this literacy. They have they have some recognized healthcare systems because they they do a lot on the on the prevention side which are models that I know a lot of countries are are looking at and then they have a lot in equity for women mm-hmm. and I think I cannot forget that um with that being just such a strong pillar within our mission having the opportunity to be there during International Women's Day it was it really stood out because everybody recognized that. Oh my gosh, it was literally um, everyone. Like people everyone. were stopping our group of primarily women on the street to be like, hi, congratulations on women. And we were like, thank you. It was incredible. Ex- <laughs> yes, I was like, wow. And it was person after person to mm-hmm. your point, Lauren. And I was like, wow, this is something we really could, you know, take and maybe develop more within our country, that appreciation and so, yeah, that those are those are some things that truly stood out. And speaking on the equity side, I know there was one day we spoke with the Federation of Cuban Women, and they talked about women having equal pay. And I was mm-hmm. like, "What?" That was, I was like, "Okay, International Women's Day, equal pay." So, not everything there. Despite there are a lot of challenges in the country, there's definitely some things that I've taken away from that visit. Yeah, I think, you know, we were talking about the literacy rates with a previous caller on the show. Um, And I think what's standing out for me, you know, there's not necessarily maybe a lot of ways that we could, you know, take the Cuban system and apply it here just, you know, for all of the reasons. But what an interesting, I'm just still like the lens was completely different. Like what would, what the priorities were, you know, when there's money or when there's resources, where are we putting them? Like that was so different. And it's so interesting to see what it looks like when those things, you know, when the priorities shift Um, and when you're prior, when, you know, they prioritized women's equality so much, you know, you kind of see that even in just people know how many people knew it was International Women's Day, which I can't promise I would have woken (laughs) up that morning and just known off the top, you know, first thing that that's what it was. Um, but, I mean, yeah, it was it was no. so interesting. Absolutely. One of the other things that stood out is when we went to the early childhood education daycares that they had, and there was, just walking through it, there was clearly they didn't have the same level of resources that we have here, but there was that, there was a lot of emphasis on what is called play-based learning, like when we went outside, even though it doesn't cost a lot, they had gardens, you know, in their play area. And I'm like, that's such a an ingenious, like, thought, because it doesn't cost a lot. It takes no. more time to put a garden in, but it's very hands-on. It's very tactile. And in those early formative years, I, I think that's a great example. There's also... They had something very simple. It was very rudimentary in their in their daycare, but they had simulations of work. And again, this is that play based learning where they used cardboard boxes and they had pictures drawn on them essentially and it looked like there were workstations and like one of the kids were 
looking like they were fixing glasses. And another child was looking like they were working at a computer desk. And it was like at an early age, of course, they just putting that hands yeah. on. They can't and, tell that it's and, a cardboard box. <laughs> they couldn't do any no. more with something that wasn't a cardboard box. Absolutely. And then it's in further around the corner, they even had where they had stores where the children could go in like as if they were shopping or they were working in the store and, and they actually had the shampoos and the mm-hmm. dish detergent simulations there. And so I was like, you know, this doesn't cost a lot of money. And look, the impact of exposing our children a lot earlier you know, and without all, without all of the complications of growing old with all the responsibilities <laughs> that come with having to grow up. So no I found that fascinating as well, Lauren. Yeah, I mean, that definitely, I was looking back through photos and just, I took so many pictures in that room because it was so fascinating. And we talk about early childhood so much that I can't wait to like have some time with the team to like get into that and, and, and get their thoughts as people who weren't on the trip, but who have, you know, the early childhood background. Um, Sarika, now you are our last caller of the day, which means you have the honor of answering our five fun questions. One day they're going to give me a theme <laughs> song, but we don't have one right now. The first question. Okay. Oh, maybe. Yes. Oh, he, we got some beats. Oh. Oh, here we go. Five fun questions. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> As a child, what was your favorite book to read or have read to you? Tinky Tinky Timbo, No Star Rumbo, Charlie Parker, Richard Parker, Tipperee, Pimbo. And that's that. You remember that book? I, I do. I do remember it, actually. The so, second you started, I was like, I don't remember the title that well, but I do remember that book. <laughs> yes. Favorite and at, book. And at that point, what did you want to be when you were growing up? I wanted to be a veterinarian. Didn't we all? <laughs> yes. Yeah, until I learned better. I don't want to smell animals all day. Yeah, it's But I love animals. We love the animals. All right, that's actually great cuz it goes right to our third question. What is your favorite animal? Mm, the peacock. Oh. All right, you're going to have to tell us a little bit about why. I think they're just so beautiful and there's a mystical air about them. And so I I would love to just be able to watch and observe them. Very cool. I had a friend growing up who had peacocks in her neighborhood, and it was, like, so cool because they would just be, like, standing on someone's roof, like, in Houston. It was very bizarre. But it was they were so they are wow. so beautiful. Yeah. All right. My favorite five fun, fast question. When they make the Bring Sarika Barlow story, who will play you? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> I never really think about myself like that. Um, I would think. If they ever made my story, you know the act, <clears throat> the actress who played uh, Olivia Pope, yeah, Karen um, Washington. Yes, because she was such like a, she was such a spitfire. I think that she could probably get all of my nuances and the good ones and and the bad ones. I agree. I think she could do a very convincing Sarika. I think that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> well, thank you, Laura. All right, this last question. Do you have any advice for my March Madness bracket? (laughs) Save your money and go out to dinner. Fair enough. Thankfully, (laughs) I'm not paying for it. I've just been told to participate because someone I know wants to add more people, and I know nothing. And no one's called in. I've been asking all day for somebody to call in and give me some help. So I was hoping you had. Who should I pick to win, Sarika? You you don't have to have any evidence to answer that question. I have absolutely zero because clearly my brackets have never won. But I will tell you, if you put a Cinderella on top and they win, you're probably going to have the most memorable bracket ever. That's fair. I'm thinking I'm just going to go by which teams, like logos, I like the most, and that's how I'll pick. I think you'll probably be just as uh, successful as those who use all the statistics. So do whatever that's, feels that's national what I've been told. All right, Sarika, thanks mm-hmm. so much for hopping on the radio and for joining us last week in Cuba. All righty. Thank you all for listening. It's that time of the day. This has been Growing Up in America by Children at Risk. If you enjoyed this chat, tune in next Wednesday or any Wednesday from 1 to 2 p.m. This is Lauren. Talk to you all soon.